This is Man's Search for Medicine with your hosts, Brandon Smith and Zach Pope. This podcast is the result of our desire to change the standard of care for chronic disease and to make wellness and optimal health the new norm. We're seeking out the health knowledge we haven't learned in medical school, and we're connecting with innovators and thought leaders needed to drive this change. Through this learning process, we hope to excite doctors, empower patients, and challenge dogma, all while bringing humility and curiosity to the art and science of medicine. All right, today's episode is with Sarah Bolyu. Sarah is a nationally sought-after speaker and author who trains workplaces and advises leaders on skills-based sexual harassment prevention and response. Her work and expertise has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Fox News, AskMen.com, and the Huffington Post, to name a few. She's been a featured speaker at TEDx Beacon Street and the Business Innovation Factory Summit. She has trained a wide variety of organizations, ranging from startups to large corporations to fraternities to members of the Junior League. Sarah graduated from Brown University, majoring in women's studies and religious studies, and then she went on to receive an MBA at Boston College. Sarah served for five years on the board of the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, one of the nation's oldest rape crisis centers, where she started as a medical advocate and survivor speaker. In 2013, Sarah founded the Enliven Project, a campaign to generate a culture change in sexual violence and lift survivors to their fullest potential. The graphic she created and released through the Enliven Project called The Truth About False Accusations generated international discussion and debate and has been reblogged over 600,000 times. In 2017, Sarah founded The Uncomfortable Conversation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to normalizing conversations about sexual violence, especially for young men. The Uncomfortable Conversation has produced over 100 YouTube videos illustrating how men can support survivors, navigate consent, and address troubling ideas or behaviors among peers. Sarah's book, which will be released early next year, called Breaking the Silence Habit, A Practical Guide to Uncomfortable Conversations in the Me Too Workplace, offers employees and managers a path forward to learn and teach the skills required for safe and respectful workplaces for people of all genders. After reading this book, I will definitely be getting a few copies to give the leaders that I work with who are in need of the practical step-by-step training and framework to be proactive in addressing the culture of their organization. The most difficult conversations are the most important ones to have, and this book really lowers the barrier to entry to begin a dialogue. In this conversation, Sarah and I discuss these practical steps for creating the ideal workplace environment. She shared with me a bit about the journey that has shaped her passion for generating this change. We discussed her perspective on false accusations and why sexual assault training doesn't work for many organizations. We take a stab at addressing the true root causes of sexual violence and mistreatment in our discussion about power and privilege. We talked about the differences between skills and rules and why that's so important to delineate. We also chat a bit about our experiences at our CrossFit gym, which is where Sarah and I originally met. I learned so much from this conversation, and I have no doubt, regardless of the experiences and knowledge that you may or may not have on this subject, that you will learn something valuable as well. 
To learn more about Sarah's work or consulting, you can find her at Sarah Beaulieu, that's B-E-A-U-L-I-E-U dot me. And you can pre-order her book on Amazon, which will be released in February. Before continuing to the interview, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode in and of itself is a difficult conversation. It was for me, and it could definitely be for you as well. The statistics tell me that about 25% of the people listening to this podcast have experienced some form of sexual violence, sexual harassment, or rape. I recognize that I lack the experiential wisdom to truly, viscerally understand the potential impact of this conversation on a listener who is a victim of sexual assault. However, if the vision is to dramatically change the culture of sexual violence, I believe this conversation is congruent with this goal. As Sarah points out, the conditions that permit sexual harassment to occur in the first place include avoidance of uncomfortable conversations, highlighting the importance of discussions like these. If you're a survivor and need to take action, Sarah has referenced the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673 or RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N.org, as a resource that may be a helpful next step, and those are available in the show notes. This conversation may seem outside the scope of our vision here with the podcast, but I think by the end of the episode, it will be clear how sexual violence in the workplace influences individual and public health, and it's really an incredibly neglected opportunity to improve health and well-being and minimize the suffering in our world. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Sarah Bolyu. Um, we did Kelly yesterday, right? Karen. Karen, yeah. So that's 150 Karen's wall balls. Bitch. How are you? How are you? <laughs> My uh, legs only hurt that. when I use them. Yeah. Okay. So statically, kind of hanging out. It's okay. But yeah, that was. It was my first RX cool. too. I did it. Oh, nice. It's yeah. It's it's just it's over a brutal 10 minutes, benchmark. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Wow. My life. Yeah. The last couple of years. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Because you've been at the 5 a.m. for a while now. I was at the right? 5 a.m. since January. It was okay. like basically when I, I wrote the book. Like when I started writing the book, I started going at 5 a.m. Okay. Huh. And what other like self-care like practices do you have? I mean, this is such a a field of work that I'm sure is just a, a very raw and vulnerable field all the time. And so like surely there's humor. a lot of humor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> humor, friends, wine. <laughs> Great. Okay. Exercise. Exercise. All the, yeah. Classes. Okay. You know, like remembering mission. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I have like, you know, I, I have... My friend Russ, who does the Uncomfortable Conversation, like the YouTube channel mm-hmm. with me, uh, you know, it's like we, I mean, we talk probably every Friday, do a video chat. Okay. Like every Friday. And then they come like, he and his wife and kids come up for New Year's every year. And so I feel like he's sort of like a big part of my self-care strategy. It always yeah. has been. It sounded like it all the way back from that <laughs> yes. stairwell that yes. you like. From, can you talk a little bit about that whole like time you met Russ and kind of everything that kind of led up to that moment? Well, so so Russ tells the story differently than I tell it. Okay. So I I tell the story as the beginning of our friendship was kind of that night, like solidified our friendship, which lasted. I mean, we had a meal together almost every single day when we were in college, kind of four years of Brown. Uh But what he remembers is, so we actually knew each other in high school. He he didn't go to my high school, but he dated a friend of mine. And... (laughs) Uh, and so when we both found out that we were going to Brown, he, I drove up to Brown with my parents and with his mom. And for some reason, 
his mom was driving my mom back to New Jersey. Hmm. And so, <laughs> and I forget why it was happening, but uh, Russ was his mom's youngest. So she was psyched that he was leaving for college and was going to be out of the house. And then, and then uh, my mom was devastated. And so she, um, she looked at Russ as she was walking away and said, take care of my girl. And to Russ, that literally like became a mission for him. And then, so this whole, the stairwell incident was probably two weeks after that. And so he came into that conversation with just the weight of my mother's voice. Oh, wow. Take care of my girl. And you so know, he like knew what he had to do. He knew what he had to do, he he had to do in, that, in that moment for sure. Nice. Okay. Um, and can you kind of, uh, give a little background for that uh, moment in the stairwell and kind of where you come to this whole like mission from. Well, so I, I so I use that I use that story as one of the stories that I tell about about what it takes, particularly around understanding what makes it hard for men to come at conversations about sexual violence from this desire for fight fight, flight, or fix. And so that was, that was the moment where Russ knew that I was a survivor of sexual abuse and assault, but my coming into my freshman year of college, I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with an eating disorder. I hadn't yet found the help and support and healing that I needed to find. And so I was, I was in a pretty dark place. And one of those nights that that whole experience of my trauma just kind of like spilled out and just like, crying and stuff. I don't, even, I don't know why I was crying. I don't know what started it, but I was just, I had a lot of feelings and, and a lot of bad and negative feelings. And I, d- and I remember that moment of Russ's helplessness and the feeling of just not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do, knowing that he wanted to be there and show up for me, but afraid of getting it, you know, afraid of getting it wrong. And I just remember him just like, he just stayed, but he didn't, you know, he didn't run away. He didn't freak out. He just, he stayed. And over the course of our friendship he really learned i mean there were times he came to therapy with me to understand from a professional mm. the different ways that he could that he could show up and and had to learn that lesson of just not it wasn't his job to fix things and it wasn't his job to fight the people that had done me wrong it was really just his job to be there for me as my friend and to witness the feelings that i was having and that that could be really powerful in terms of healing so a lot of your work has really surrounded around conversations with men about this which is just I think really the missing piece if there is one like a huge missing piece of this whole issue that we're dealing with Uh, but so many of the survivors that I've talked to that has not been on the forefront of their mind at any point in their kind of healing process when was that inflection point for you where you kind of realized okay like if if the goal is to uh, fix this problem then it's going to have to include men. So I would say in a couple of ways. So one is for me, based on my experience as a survivor of child sexual abuse, I always understood that sexual abuse impacted women and men. And so I think coming into contact with male survivors of sexual abuse very early in my healing process and as a part of my healing process was really profound to me. And just understanding that that our pain was the same and and that but that the obstacles that we faced around healing were different. And so I think that was something that I carried with me through my own just healing and recovery process and was able to to witness other male survivors really come to terms with what had happened to them oftentimes much later in life after more serious repercussions. 
So I was, I was young. I was, you know, 1920 when I was able to do the bulk of my healing work, mm -hmm. but seeing men in their thirties and forties after broken relationships, after marriage, after, you know, marriage is failing after addiction to just to, you know, to have that opportunity come to them later in life was, was, um, important to me. But it was, you know, it was probably around, it was around 2011 when I was starting to think about, okay, I've done my own healing. I've done my, my personal work on this issue. I had done some direct service work as a rape crisis counselor as well, and really wanted to think about how could I leverage some of my professional expertise on this topic. And so at the time I was working for an organization that did these big bipartisan cross-sector issue-based campaigns. And so before we started a campaign, one of the things that we did was called it a listening tour and, and went out and talked to people um, and started to really understand the field, understand the issue, understood how people talk about the issue, what solutions they were looking at, kind of how, you know, how they were thinking about it. And so I, so I basically just did a kind of off the corner of my desk as a side project, like my own listening tour around both the field of sexual violence prevention and response, as well as leaders in nonprofit organizations and philanthropy in business and just said like, so sexual violence, let's talk about it. Why aren't you talking about it? How does this issue show up and how does this issue show up in your work? And I had some, I had some thoughts about it. We're just really thinking about sexual violence more broadly, thinking about both prevention and response together and, and what that looked like. And as I did that, I realized a couple of things is that, you know, one is that there were, there were some fairly good resources out there, particularly, I would say the rape crisis center network across the country that's funded primarily through the violence against women act, but that those centers were really critical places of support for people who had the lived experience of sexual violence, particularly, um, particularly women of color and um, and people with of LGBT backgrounds who are who have higher rates of perpetration and fewer resources and more obstacles to mm -hmm. seeking resources. Um, but you know from a and, and then there was a lot of content about that was designed essentially to teach men how not to perpetrate right. sexual a violence. Right, like regulations. Right, and, exactly. Well, it's like policy stuff or just mm -hmm. like here are the rules or here's like what consent is. Mm -hmm. But but Compliance training. Some of, yeah, so in the workplace, certainly. I mean, this is actually before I was really focusing on the workplace, but a lot of those same dynamics okay. are, are at play in the workplace. And, you know, and, but that there of all of the men that I talked to, one of the, like what they were looking for was less gosh, I really need to understand systemic oppression and the patriarchy, but more like, well, what do I say to somebody who just told me they were sexually assaulted, like in this moment? Yeah. And so that was actually what got me started both on this, this pathway of, of thinking about men as a target audience, as well as thinking, and I would say, and men, when I say men, I mean, cisgender heterosexual men. Right. And, and then also thinking about the the practical tone so a little bit of the like let's just be practical about this thing let's talk about it in a plain way let's let's make sure that that we're making language accessible as we're talking to people about the kind of the basic tenets of sexual violence prevention yeah and <clears throat> i think that's so important that's so important to uh, kind of underscore the practicality of it i mean in your book you it's just like i feel i feel equipped to like go into an organization and and walk them through kind of this training pro and you you literally have a training program in the book and i and i also really enjoyed the youtube channel and uh what is it uh uncomfortable uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable conversation and these really pragmatic uh videos i wanted to say some of the titles because it, it was it was eye catching and frankly very helpful for me to watch it it's like okay how to get drunk and not rape someone and that's like an ongoing series because there are you know a million ways as Correct. you say <laughs> um 
uh, how to call out a rape joke at a party, how to talk about false accusations with your friends, and how to respond to a Me Too post on Instagram. And these are all things that like I feel like I have like dealt with. And I was like, oh wow, like thank you for this little tidbit. And that's and that's really what you're going through um, in your book. And so I kind of wanted to walk through the framework that you provide because I found that just super compelling and and really helpful to understanding kind of how to how to move forward. Uh, so the first uh, the first part of the framework is to know the facts, right? And can you so can you kind of underscore why that is like the first thing why that's so important? Yeah. So the the one thing that I'll say about the about the framework is that the framework is really it's a way to approach a specific kind of conversation about sexual violence. So it's one it's one where you are viewing yourself as a participant in changing the culture. And so I think it's it's not so, so if you are somebody who is being sexually harassed, this is not the framework for you, for you to mm-hmm. use. So I like to just say, yes. I like to just say that up front. And yeah. so it's a particular kind, it's a, it's a framework to serve a particular kind of conversation. But, but the, the know the facts piece is, you know, there are so many facts about sexual harassment and violence that are surprising to people. And so one of the ones that I, that I often share in a workplace context is, is the prevalence of sexual abuse or assault. Because one of the things that sometimes we try to do in a workplace is talk about sexual harassment with, and we fail to consider that we're having that conversation with people who've either directly or indirectly been impacted by sexual abuse or assault outside of the workplace. And so mm-hmm. that makes it just a tougher conversation. Mm-hmm. So one is, and so in, in the US, one in four women and one in six men are sexually abused or assaulted in their lifetime, one in two individuals, uh, transgender individuals. So when you're thinking about, and if you're t- thinking about an international workplace, then the rates are often much higher. Okay. And so when, so that's so that's kind of one set of facts. Another set of facts is simply the, the fact around people's experience talking about this. So oftentimes we assume that, well, I grew up at the dinner table and my parents talked to me about consent and healthy relationships all the time. So obviously, so yeah. so have yours. Yeah. And and when you're thinking again about cross-cultural workplaces, it's that like people's family life and family histories are really different. And, and you might be having some people feeling like now we're talking about very private things in a very public context. And that's incredibly uncomfortable to me. Uh, some other facts around sexual harassment, just the, the number of, of people who have experience sexual harassment and most of the surveys are around women but if, if you are thinking about about depending on the industry anywhere from one in four to three in four women have experienced experienced some kind of sexual harassment when i'm talking to men it's like thinking about that of how many times has someone told you they were sexually harassed because yeah. if that's and if that's not computing you really should be asking yourself why people aren't telling you and what you might what you might be able to do to make yourself friendlier uh, around that topic mm-hmm. and then the other piece of it is that there are some real obstacles so despite people despite people will report that they've been sexually harassed they don't actually report it formally and there are many obstacles to reporting it formally uh, fear of retaliation um, you know just the sort of social stigma around it the fear of not advancing yourself professionally kind of not wanting to make a big deal out of it there's you know kind of a, there's all, all sorts of reasons and so I think when we start a conversation not just understanding the facts but also understanding that that the person that you're talking to might have a different set of facts in front of them than you do kind of reminds you that it's like think this you know you might say something that reflects a lack of understanding about something. And so so maybe the point of this conversation is simply for me to, in a non-judgmental way, introduce some new facts to the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and that, those facts might be hard for you to hear. And um, and that's also that's also okay. Yes, yeah, you're really considering the intention of the conversation. It's Some conversations are more kind of 
uh, like unidirectional, like, hey, you know, these are things that you don't know, and I, I do know about this, so I yeah. want to share it with you. And some are a little bit more, uh, more of an exchange, right. more of like a kind of a curiosity. This is where I'm coming from, where are you coming from, right. and, and finding uh, how we can have some right. common ground. And I'd also say on the know the facts piece is that sometimes a part- whether or not you agree on a particular fact is actually not relevant to the conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like whether I, the false accusation one comes up all the time. So yeah. it's like whether or not you think false accusation is you know, is a big deal or not a big deal is highly common or not common at all. Like, I actually don't feel like we really would need to agree on that in order to come together about, well, you know, if somebody is sexually assaulted, we should respond to them with empathy and give them care. And so it's, and it's also, it's, and if somebody's telling you they're sexually assaulted, it doesn't do you or them any good to believe that they're lying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it gets back to this idea of like goal congruence that you kind of come back to again and again is like, what is the goal here? Is the goal to like fix this? And if it is, then we like, how does it benefit us to to not believe? Right. Take a long view. Yeah, yeah. Um, So the second one, which is my personal favorite is get uncomfortable. And that too kind of comes with this this call to curiosity, you know, why is it that this is so uncomfortable for me to confront? And you kind of lay out this, this chart in the book of like, uh, the questions and what you know, you're thinking and how you might be able to respond like optimally. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's the central thing is, is most people go, one of the primary reasons people avoid conversations about sexual harassment and violence is because they're uncomfortable, but the result of the silence is more discomfort for more people. So we might as well just choose the discomfort that is also going to lead us to a better and more safe and respectful culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, you know, discomfort isn't a problem. Discomfort is just part of the process. Yeah. And for me, this, this is the part of the book and your framework altogether that relates this particular topic to just the human experience. Because discomfort is almost always on the other side of the things that are most important to us, right? And people who listen to this uh, frequently hear me refer to acceptance and commitment therapy and what we're doing with um, COPE at the University of Tennessee, kind of helping medical students uh, cultivate their ability to identify values and then live in commitment to them. And that often comes with the most uncomfortable things. And how can we become better at having these breaking the habit of responding to discomfort with isolation and um, putting up boundaries. And so what are some like kind of practical tools for someone who says, well, it's super uncomfortable. And so I don't know where to start with that. So, I mean, I think about applying the skills. So every, everybody has done something uncomfortable in mm-hmm. their life. So one of the metaphors I use a lot is running, right? Okay. I, I hate running. Mm-hmm. It's really uncomfortable. Likewise. I don't like, I yeah. like, don't like how it feels <laughs> in my body. <laughs> but, but if I, you know, that's, I don't run to feel comfortable. I run because of how I feel afterwards. I run because it's great cardiovascular exercise. Mm-hmm. I run because I'm trying to catch someone. And so there's, you know, there's lots of different reasons to run. So I think it's one is remember the reason. So like, okay. remember the reason that you are making yourself uncomfortable. And so if it's, if it's really unbearable for you to sustain a moment of discomfort in a conversation so that somebody doesn't get sexually assaulted or harassed at work, then 
I'm going to just move on to the next person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I found that most people are willing to tolerate a little bit of discomfort if they understand that it, it is a discomfort that will reach you, reach a, a larger goal for somebody that they care about or for a culture that they have to be a part of. Um, the other thing I think that's important is learning how to recognize discomfort in your body. So I feel uncomfortable every time I talk about sexual violence and I talk about it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I recognize the different, I turned the heat off before we started, (laughs) before we started, started talking today. I take my sweater off. It's fine. I'm like, I know I'm going to get hot. I know that in the beginning, I'm going to say a lot of ums and uhs because I'm just getting myself going and I'm not going to beat myself up over it because I'm just kind of getting into the converse, getting into the conversation and allowing myself to feel that discomfort. And the more that you feel it, the more that you can recognize the difference between discomfort that's part of the process and discomfort that's harmful. And again, that goes back to anything that's that's physical in your body too is that sometimes sometimes you're running and and you feel like you can't breathe and you just need to work on your breathing and other times you're having an asthma attack and you should probably stop running and take your inhaler and so you need to be able to discern the difference between those two different kinds of discomfort but but you're not going to do it if you just avoid discomfort altogether yeah and that's really a central tenet of the book. What does it look like for us as a society to be like more comfortable with uncomfortable conversations? Like what what is kind of the vision for what you what you're hoping to do with this kind of framework? I think the the vision for this kind of framework is that we are in a culture that is having more conversations about boundaries, behavior and healthy relationships. Okay. And and I would say outside of the workplace consent. So kind of in the workplace boundaries, behavior and healthy relationships. And I'm sure everyone has, I mean, based on the statistics, everyone has kind of some dealt with some of these uh, challenges, conversations. What is it about what we're doing that is just not working? We're avoiding the conversations okay. yeah. to begin with. So, yeah. and, and I think in a lot of ways, we're, we're relying on rules to solve the problems rather than just, rather than building the skills around. So, so having, having a healthy relationship, having, setting and respecting boundaries, navigating consent, those are all skills that we can develop as human beings or not. The way that we develop them is to practice them and we practice them through conversations. And so if we're not practicing them, we're not learning them and we're not teaching them. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when we show up in the workplace and you've got a bunch of you know, adults working together, but we haven't taught people how to, how to have these skills in elementary school and middle school and high school or in college, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be surprised that things fall apart. Yeah, I that comparison was kind of mind expanding for me, comparing rules to skills and, and realizing the rules, we shouldn't just throw the rules out. The rules are super rules important. Are important. And the, the first part of this dialogue, they create our vernacular and our kind of our boundaries for how we're going to talk about this. But it often just stops at that. Yes. And, 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 I, and frankly, I think that, that that issue transcends even this like this particular subject. It is pervasive across the board. We like to be kind of like cerebral and function in our own silos. And because of that, like we're able to really just hear the rules and move on, hear the rules and move on. And but skills require this level of commitment and we have to realign ourselves with this like common vision. And, right. And as you know, um, your book is uh, Breaking the Silence Habit. And I thought that, that the word habit there was so important because you call upon like some of the work that you know Charles Duguig has done. And I talked to um, Dr. Uh, Judd Brewer uh, last week, 
and all of his work is surrounding habit and how difficult it is for people to change their habit. What are some of the ways that you look about uh, look at changing people's really reinforced behavior? So one of the things that I liked about some of the habit research that I've read is the the idea of a replacement habit. So it's it's the idea of so for me and again, it's, it's sometimes it's an annoying habit and I have to talk myself out of it is that when I see something uncomfortable or experience that level of discomfort, I am compelled to say something and you can often be awkward and mm-hmm. more uncomfortable. And sometimes it's on the train going to work. And actually a lot of times it's on the orange line here. Yeah, in you, yeah. <laughs> Which we've shared together before. Yes, it's just yes. really fantastic. Just, <laughs> um, bystander intervention. Yeah. You'd be taught on the orange line in Boston. What can you walk me through one of those instances? If you can think of one off the top of your head. Oh gosh. Yeah. So, well, okay. So, there's one time I was getting on the train and I was coming back from work and and I got on the train and there was a, a, a man standing on one side of the train and there was another man sitting down. And the man sitting down was yelling, like just sort of yelling obscenities at this this other person. And, and then there was kind of just like some other, somebody else seemed to be involved, but then they got off the train. And so I was feeling unsafe because the man who was yelling was, was doing so kind of in that physically aggressive, like, I'm going to, like, I'm threatening, like, I'm going to, I'm going to get you, like, I'm going to hit you. And I'm looking at this other man who, and he looked scared. And so I was sitting down next to probably three women. And I, so I looked at him and I said, um, I was, I I said, I remember just, I said, sort of like, what's, you know, like, is there anything I can, you know, Mm -hmm. anything I can do to help? And, and then at that, or actually I might have just turned to the woman sitting next to me and said like, this, like, what's like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And so, so we actually all started talking. And so what's interesting about that, right, is that the idea of bystander intervention is really about intervention on the culture. And it's about most people don't want a violent person to be in control of everyone on the, on the train, right? Mm-hmm. But by being silent, we allow that person to have the power and control and we don't send them any messages that like they think, well, great, it's just like me against this guy, like I can definitely win. And so what started happening, what starts to happen when you start to just do those signals. So what, what we ended up saying to him, so we then we, we talked to him and we kind of were debriefing what was happening. And we said, well, how can we get you off the train safely? And so we said, do you want us to walk you off at the next stop? Um, because it, he had to walk by this guy to get off the train. And so we were, we were thinking, so we all started brainstorming how to do that. And so ultimately we get to the next stop. And I think, you know, two, one woman gets, actually one woman gets off first and she, she walks by him. She's like, I'm not scared of him. She's like, I got seven brothers at home. So she looks at him and she was like, you keep your hands to yourself. We're watching you. And so, so that happened first. And then at the next stop, two of us just walked him off the train. He got off one door, got off the other, got on the other side of the car and then was separated from this person. But, but in doing that, it was less about the intervention we didn't talk, you know, other than the, the woman who had seven brothers and was not scared. It's like mm-hmm. we didn't actually talk or interact with the person who was perpetrating the aggression at all. What we did was show up for the person who was being victimized. And in doing so, the power dynamics in the in, in the train car change. And so and you can do that in any kind of culture where it's so the power dynamic, you know, simply by sometimes it can just be, hey, what time is it? Oh, I'm asking, I'm asking you for the time because that guy's making me feel creepy. Mm. Like I've said that before. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then you feel safer as a person. I think it's just by being able to make those, con- like, to make those connections is, is really important. 
So you brought up power there, and um, that, I guess that's kind of something I wanted to talk to you about because you know I'm coming from the world of medicine, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the the statistics about sexual assault in the healthcare sphere. It's it's pretty grim. Yeah, and. I think a lot of that is based on what I've read. A lot of that's related to these very, these power dynamics that are super, you know, ingrained in our culture and often perpetrated by men as well. And so I, I, I really just wanted to have this uh, brief, well, or not briefly, uh, uncomfortable conversation about, about masculinity, toxic masculinity, toxic culture of masculinity, power, because um, this is something that I've been kind of grappling with a lot recently and um, could use some guidance on that. Yeah. Hmm. And one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that the relationship between individuals and inherited and historic kind of generational dynamics. And so when I think about I don't love the phrase toxic masculinity. I think right. it, I think it actually furthers some of the the isolation and shame that's really present in men's lives that um, that equally needs to be addressed in a system that that is not working. And the, so the way that I like to think about it is is how do we take responsibility for what we have inherited and what we are representing in the world? while at the same time meeting other people with the compassion and empathy that they didn't ask to be born who they were. Mm. So if, you know, so I think it's, you know, if you're, if you're a white male, you didn't ask to be like, you didn't ask to be born a, a man. Like that wasn't, that wasn't up to you. Know, that wasn't up to you. It wasn't your, it wasn't your decision, but, and at some point you need to understand what that means and what, and, and what that could mean and what it doesn't mean, but that the the culture really has such a powerful influence on on how we live into our identities or don't live into our identities. And, um, and so I think it's just having more, having more conversations about, about how that happens and why that happens. So digging a little bit deeper, why is it that men are the most common perpetrators of sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual violence? I mean, that may sound intuitive, but as a, as a, Man, this is a question that I often, you know, am wondering what, like what, you know, are, are men inherently evil? Well, I don't, you know, some would think so, but it doesn't seem like you would think that. So what is it, what is it that poises men to be, you know, doing this? I don't know. I don't study perpetrators. I'm not really interested Mm. in that. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think that it is a natural human tendency uh, to abuse power if you have it. So, and, and sexual violence certainly is about power. And while men are perpetrators, men are not exclusively perpetrators, but if we live in a society that has been a, a society where it's been dominantly the, the people in power, the gender in power has predominantly been male, then it shouldn't be surprising that men are the predominant perpetrators of sexual violence. So it's just, it's, sexual violence is just one kind of abuse of power and it's mm-hmm. an abuse of power and kind of a, a sick boundary crossing way that's about bodies, but it's not the only, it's not the only abuse of power. And, and I think we, I think it's easy to fall in, just sort of fall into traps of, of the blame and the shame that's really not helpful. And so again, I mean, it's like, I'm not interested in perpetrators because I think it's, I think that, that we're not asking anybody asking the most powerful people to give up their power is actually not the way you shift power dynamics in a culture. It's, it's by creating more power and sharing that power together. 
Mm. And that's like a radical feminist point of view. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, but it also, I think it's, it's rooted in this idea that if we view power, if we view that as scarce and limited, mm-hmm. then it becomes this resource that we bargain for and, and whatever. But if we're able to view it as a, abundance, abundance yeah. and um, empowering, then kind of we can, we can share this like right. level of. And that concept is sits alongside of the concept of power is abused. And so I think that there is, even in a, in a world of abundant power, that doesn't actually take away the fact that people yeah. will abuse power if they have it. So, and so I think that, and I do think that's important, particularly as we think about racial and gender dynamics, is that sometimes it can sound, it can sound squishy to say, well, like, let's just reframe our, let's just, let's just talk about the abundance of power instead of the real historical abuses of power that have happened across gender and racial lines. Mm -hmm. So the uncomfortable conversation is, I consider like a rate limiting step in like changing our culture, but it also does seem like really getting to the root cause of and, and I know you've expressed you're not as interested in the perpetrator side of things, but you've had so many of these conversations with men. Have you had any conversations with anyone who is a perpetrator? Yeah. Okay. And can you share some of kind of a consensus of their motivations, reasonings, thought processes? Is it too varied to really? I mean, it's, it's varied, right? I mean, I think some of the research around perpetrators really, I mean, again, looks at, at, there's some research that suggests that perpetrators, particularly of sexual assault, are repeated perpetrators. And so, and so again, like, this would make sense. It's like if you're somebody who has a problem with boundaries or respecting boundaries or a problem with power or abusing power, then you're going to just kind of repeatedly do it. And so, again, that's why focusing on the people around that person and so the culture actually can be protective or not protective of that person. And so if you're thinking about about a culture of silence. I mean, you think about Catholic church, you think about gymnastics, you think about the sort of big boy scouts, like kind of big institutions where serial perpetrators got away with what they were doing. It's, it's one is people don't want to believe that somebody is capable of doing that. People want to believe that they didn't mean to do it or that they won't do it again, even though the evidence suggests that they probably will. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some, you know, so I think that's one piece. I think, you know, sometimes our systems of accountability and justice are totally warped. That's just another, we could have an hour long conversation about that. But, you know, the, you know, how, how do we actually help perpetrators not perpetrate anymore? There's a couple of good organizations. Stop It Now is an organization that focuses on supporting people who are at risk for committing child sexual abuse and how to identify perpetrators. That's actually, that's, I mean, I follow some of their stuff and their, their framework, their framing is really interesting just in terms of how do you have uncomfortable conversations, particularly with potential perpetrators of child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Really uncomfortable. Yeah. But that's so important. (laughs) And I mean, this is, I think a very uncomfortable thing for me to say and quite have a hot take, but these are human beings as well. Yeah. And, 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 like you, we can demonize these people who commit terrible, you know, unquestionably terrible actions. But is that moving us forward towards our goal? Right. Of, you know, changing the culture. Right. Know? Well, and I don't know. I mean, I think it's you know, in some cases, it's you know, how do you keep how do you keep people, you know, particularly vulnerable people, safe? Exactly. While at the same time, not and I and not giving up on a human being or 
you know, are essentially kind of the way that our justice system works, kind of just throw them away as, right. human, as human beings and make it impossible for them to have a job, make it impossible for them to, um, you know, to make a living, you know, judge them for having relationships or people who care about them in their lives. So it's, you know, so I think there's a lot of things that are kind of messed up in that. It's like not my particular area of focus or kind of, I don't feel called to solve uh-huh. that. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's really an important conversation. So you mentioned blame and that's kind of a, a part of the third part of your framework that blame doesn't start a conversation. It ends one. And I, that, that was pretty profound. And I think that's a really helpful thing for us to remember. So the third part is uh, pause the reaction and get curious, not furious, which I love. I love that as well. <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I, mean, I learned the get curious, not furious, and actually in a parenting class where it's if you know if your if your child's doing something and you're like, why are you doing this this disruptive behavior? It's like get curious about why they're doing because they always have a reason. Uh-huh. Um, but, but the idea of pausing a reaction, and again, is like, this is not pausing a reaction if you are somebody who is being sexually harassed or victimized in any way. Like, I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm suggesting is that in broader conversations right. about sexual harassment or violence uh, inside a, a workplace context or with your friends is, is we will hear things that give us an emotional charge. And because there, ha- I mean, of course there is. Because we're carrying, so- we're carrying so many unspoken conversations into a dialogue that we're having. That somebody's going to say something that like pisses you off, For or sure. and and so if your first response, if you react out of that place, then the conversation just ratchets up. So it's kind of like, how do you just like lower the levels of you know lower those levels a little bit so that you can continue the conversation and again. Maybe somebody said something and they deserve to just be like verbally pinned down to the ground. But usually like that's a choice that I make if I'm in an, in, you know, that's just like not going to be a choice that I would make if I'm trying to move the, you know, move the relationship around. And that's, and that's, there's also a way as you, you know, a way to set a boundary in a conversation without bringing additional judgment and shame to the person. So it's like, you know, this, this conversation is not productive and I'm, I'm not willing to continue it anymore. Hmm. Like I can still protect myself in a conversation or say like, I'm not really willing to answer that question. Yeah. 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 This whole, I mean, I feel like a recurring theme here is just continuing to be curious. It's, it's hard to find a time in which that isn't like, I mean, I guess, like you said, like in the, in the midst of like a very severe situation, like perhaps that's not the first number one priority. Safety is always safety first. Is always safety first. is always yeah. like, Whether it's physical or psychological safety is always first, but there's a way to, there's a way to maintain your physical and psychological safety that that's, safe what role does curiosity play in the healing process we talked about kind of like the acute situation both in um interpersonally and in the workplace and then there's kind of this healing process does you feel like that curiosity also plays a role that's a good question i mean i i can answer that you know i think from the perspective of my own experience as a survivor but i you know i'm only an expert on my own experience and not in the we all are (laughs) right exactly (laughs) but but you know when i think about I mean, I think that the way that it applies is that oftentimes as people who've experienced sexual violence or sexual abuse is that there is so much kind of shame that you carry about those experiences and allowing yourself to be curious about your emotions. And, you know, there's also, I think there's so many emotions that you're going to feel. So you're going to feel rage, you're going to feel terrified, you're going to feel panicked, you're going to, and, you know, kind of whatever you're working through. And so I think for me, it was like learning to just 
feel curious about my own reactions and responses rather than to judge them. And so I think it's really that sort of judging and shutting yourself, like whether it's shutting yourself down or shutting somebody else down. And, you know, and I would say the same, you know, the same is true in workplace conversations where if somebody says something and it's causing a reaction for you, I like be curious about your own reaction. It's like, oh, well, why am I ha- like, mm-hmm. why is, why is this particular comments like really making me feel like I want to tell them to shut up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so let's, dive into some of those kind of practical situations. Cause I think that, that that's just so important for people to walk away with, right? Like, yes, we can be, be esoteric and we can be philosophical and ideological about the way we want things to be in, in frameworks. But like when the rubber hits the road, like we're all dealing with these, these uh, situations on the daily basis. And so I'd be interested in kind of walking through some of the really common ones that you get asked about and then some, some solutions or responses to those. Yeah. Well, we could talk about hugging. Okay. That, I think that's a great place to talk because I'm a big hugger. So this is like very yeah, exactly. so, so I think, so sometimes some of the conversations about rules, people walk away with, well, I just won't hug anyone ever again because it's too dangerous Hmm. and and i think that's sad i do too and you know i i think it's you know and i think that the again that it's it's really asking yourself well what like what kind of hug is it and so i mean i was with an employment lawyer where essentially said you know just sort of avoid the strike zone when you're hugging, like, don't, like, don't, you know, you don't need to push your entire body against somebody else's body. So it's kind of asking yourself, like, well, what kind of hug are we talking about? Um, Are you hugging people that want hugs? Are you always initiating the hug or people initiating hugs with you? So I think that's something to always to ask yourself, particularly if you consider yourself a hugger is like, am I always the one giving the hug or am I, am I receiving the hug? (laughs) I think I'll have to review the tapes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, are you talking about, hug, you know, it's, are you asking for the hug as you're already going in for it? Mm, so they feel obligated right, to so that, reciprocate. Right, exactly. Mm. So it's like kind of, rec- you know, recognizing, um, you know, I would say it's like, is it the side hug? Is it a bro hug? Is it like, you know, uh, like what, like there's different levels of intimacy within hugs. You know, I think, you know, but those are, those are just some practical questions and curiosities to have, you know, to ask yourself. So it's like in the, the, the thing is not about whether hugs are right or wrong. It's about the way that we hug and the way that we seek affection. Cause I mean, I wouldn't want to live in a world particularly. And I think unfortunately is like the, that response typically takes hugs away from men because women still feel comfortable hugging each other. Right. And so I don't want to live in a world where men don't get access to platonic affection because that's actually a world that kind of re- like perpetrates some of these still like repeats these cycles. Uh, and that's kind of one of my pet theories is that like that's a huge contributor to why men are acting out in the way they do. Yeah. Um so I so so what is the right way like are you advocating for every time that um, someone that, you know, as a male or otherwise, um, anyone wants to hug someone, they say, Hey, can I hug you? Is that, is that the approach that you're advocating for? I, I don't know necessarily. I mean, I think a lot of people walk away from it. Like, well, I have to do, like, it was the, that whole, um, you know, it's like when people got really upset about the affirmative consent or it's like, well, can I take unbutton yeah. the first button of your shirt? Uh-huh. Can I unbutton the second button of your shirt? Yeah. And, and, you know, 
So I think a better way to think about it is like understanding and recognizing your own sort of fluency in consent communication and, and to record and to be sure that you're talking to somebody that has the same level of fluency. So you said to me, like, I'm a hugger, like I'm a hugger too. So great. Like I, you know, we can see each other, we can give each other a hug. And if I don't want to hug, then I'll give you some body language or like, you know, no thanks. I'm sick. Like stay away from me. Mm. <laughs> and so how, ex- yeah, how explicit do we need to be? Cause like, I feel like some of those euphemisms and body language are up for interpretation and yeah. subjectivity. So at what, you know, it seems like it would be easy to make the argument that we should always be using like explicit, like verbal everything, you know, like. I think, I think it's, it's, if you want to be on the safe side for sure. Right. And, and I will say though, that it's, you know, we also live in a society where people who do that get ridiculed. And it's, and that's real. And so it's, so I think it, I think the way that I think about it is how am I doing my thing and living myself, you know, living my life in the world around hugs Mm -hmm. and also helping to build more fluency around the consent language. And so it's like a lot of that is a language around comfort that we have with our bodies, comfort that we have with setting and respecting boundaries. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you're, you're a hugger. So it's like, what can you do? You can talk about hugging a lot. Like you can bring up this conversation, not in the, you know, at lunch. Yeah. (laughs) So like, how do you, how do y'all feel about hugging? Yeah. How do you tell people that you're not, how do you tell people you don't want to hug? If you hug somebody once, do you always hug them every time you see them? But like, what if you're not really feeling it in the mood? It's like, I mean, I did that. This is what I do. I ask people yeah. these questions all the oh, time. And anyone who knows me, like I do the same thing. My friends are like, why do you always bring up such uncomfortable topics? And I'm like, if you smile and laugh about it, it's okay. <laughs> so, and you, you brought up a point there kind of about you get ridiculed, I think, especially as a man, if there's kind of this line you're walking and mixed message that uh, I think men get about, you know, being consensual, being communicative, but also making the first move, um, being proactive and showing affection and all these things. How would you kind of advise or guide a man kind of dealing with that discrepancy? More conversations with more clothes on. More. Oh, hmm. okay. That's a fair point. <laughs> so, I, mean, I think that's the time to be determining somebody else's consent language is like not after you've already started hooking up. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds <laughs> me, I, I was recently, I was talking to a friend, um, I'm trying to remember who was telling me this, that their their mom, I think is a sex therapist. And, and before when she was even like, I think she was in middle school or something like that. Um, she said, you know, whenever the first time you have sex, totally fine, accept that, whatever. I just want you to lay there for three minutes each of you with your clothes on and tell the other person like what you do and don't like. And I thought that was just like, A, that's just like slowing down and and kind of, as you said, kind of like positive reaction in that way, but also like communication with clothes on before. (laughs) Always a little bit better. Um, But also communication without clothes on, I think is also an important thing as well. Well, right. But if you can't communicate with your clothes on, chances are that when you take them off, the communication is not yeah, getting better. That's a very fair point. <laughs> that's a very fair point. Okay. Uh, what, what's another um, kind of practical question? Oh, that you get asked a lot? Another one that I've been hearing a lot about is just this idea of uh, gender only spaces. Well, if it's, you know, the, and, and I actually hear it from both uh, from across gender. So sometimes I'll hear women say like, well, I just, I want like, I love this workplace because it's like a women only co-working space or it's a woman only this. And so, and I think it's actually the dynamics are a little bit different. 
Um, because I do think it's important to have single gender spaces. I think also women have learned how to have them in healthier ways than men. Mm. And and then I also will hear from men, well, the best way to avoid getting sexually harassed is to stop hanging out with women. Great <laughs> idea. Yeah, less less diversity. That's how you become right. more right. inclusive. Right, exactly. I was <laughs> like, well, then, yeah, I mean, from a legal perspective, then you're setting yourself up for gender discrimination lawsuits. But, you know, it's also from a practical perspective, you're just solving the wrong problem. And so, and I think that the women-only spaces are, you know, I think are a little bit more intentional about what problems they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And so, and so again, it's just bringing it back to it's, you know, the problem is not, you know, is not genders working together. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is lack of skill around boundaries, behavior and relationships. And so yes. by simply avoiding professionals of another gender, you're actually not built, like you have no opportunity to build your skills. Yeah, exactly. So the last part of the framework is uh, seeing the whole picture. Um, And I thought this was super important. One of the things that draws me so much to medicine is, is the fact that we can look at it on a very like biochemical level and then we can extrapolate all of that to our earth Mm -hmm. and the globe and climate and um, some of the issues we're dealing with there. When I was kind of thinking of this, uh, seeing the whole picture, I could not help but think about the public health implications Mm -hmm. of um, all the kind of sexual violence that has just gone un- unrecognized. So what what do you think are some of kind of like the global like public health impacts of of our inability to have these conversations? I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that there's actually physical and mental health impacts of our inability to have these conversations. So if you think about the, you know, the the impact of trauma, particularly childhood trauma, that you know, that it has on our cardiovascular health, on our, you know, kind of ability to maintain a healthy weight, on our ability to live our lives without wanting to kill ourselves, mm-hmm. um, eating just, you know, there's so many, so many health, these are public health issues at their core are, you know, are, are, you know, are related to trauma and, and our ability to respond to trauma. And I think to really, and, you know, and again, I think it's understanding I mean, I think this is, I mean, it's in a lot of ways, just kind of a broader, I can bring it back to the experience that I had. So I have two children and I, you know, coming into my first pregnancy and childbirth experience, it didn't really occur to me that, that being a survivor of sexual abuse would be like a factor in my childbirth experience, but then going through it and I had a traumatic birth of my son and going through that experience, kind of realizing that the framework was really around the health of the baby rather than the relationship between the health of the baby and the health of the mother, because like you get a healthy baby, but if the mother's just like off the rails, like that's not actually right. a healthy baby anymore. Yeah, not at all. And so, and that's, you know, and that was going to impact, like that was impacting breastfeeding. And it's like my inability to sleep was impacting my ability to be a good mom mm-hmm. for my kid. And so, mm-hmm. so when I went in, you know, for my, you know, with my, uh, my pregnancy with my daughter, you know, I came in with just a better kind of more holistic view, but I had to advocate for myself in that. It was like, it wasn't, it wasn't a perspective of the healthcare system, which I think was shocking to me that it's given the prevalence of, of sexual violence and particularly so much evidence that, that, you know, you know, it's like something happening to my body which is basically pregnancy and childbirth that I'm mm-hmm. not in control of. You mean this alien inside of you that's, <laughs> exactly that's like an depriving alien you of that, all like, your resources? Some, <laughs> that some dude is trying to take out of me. <laughs> I mean, I had, you know, the, 
the, the most vivid memory that I have of my birth experience was basically sort of like waking up with like a man's hand inside my body telling me that he was like, you know, going to take my baby out. And, you know, and, and like, and when you think about the parallels between that and sexual violence, but that nobody's talking about it seems weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I after kind of my OBGYN rotation, and I think a lot of, a lot of other medical students have echoed this. It's kind of surprising. Just it gets so normalized. Like all the things around childbirth get so normalized. Oh, you know, we've done this for centuries. Like blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you walk in the room and, you know, you know, the patient is wearing no clothes and, you know, right. legs spread wide open and it's kind of people are in and out. And it's just like, I don't, it gets completely overlooked how like the trauma that this can cause. Right. And then I'm sure like for people with a past history of sexual violence in their life, like there's a lot of uh, kind of continuity and, and, and narrative that's being created there as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and I, and so I, you know, I came out understanding with my second that it was like, my goal was really around managing my own anxiety and also my sleep, which had a, a big impact on my, my mental health. And so that, you know, but I, you know, again, it was like, I had to advocate for that and got judgment from it. I was like, take her to the nursery. Cause I can't sleep when she's next to me. Cause it makes me too anxious. Cause I'm afraid she's going to stop breathing. And so it's, you know, so then I like, but then I, you know, I did that and I slept there like, well, you're going to have to take her home. I was like, I know I'm taking her home in five days. Cause I had a C-section. So, yeah. so yeah. I will like, I'm going to get my five days of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it boggles my mind that we're still kind of in this paradigm of not realized, like we finally have begun to flesh out how trauma affects us on a cellular level from you know looking at epigenetics and methylation demethylation all that stuff like we know how um this predisposes us to heart disease cancer you know the the things that are killing us the most but yet it is not part of um it's not part of my medical training at all um i mean just after as we have this conversation i'm thinking what would it look like for medical students and future physicians to be trained in ha in these kind of conversations. I mean, um, obviously this framework is more geared towards the workplace, which we also could benefit right. from <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> undoubtedly. Yes. Hospitals are uh, also exactly. But, but especially with our patients as well. Um, so this book maybe. Yeah. Thank you. Please uh, do a collaboration. Maybe I wanted to actually go back. And so part of this podcast is uh, Brandon and I's kind of intent to uh, meet with people on the forefront of their fields, kind of thought leaders. And that inherently, as a thought, kind of a thought leader, there's a lot of status quo disruption kind of going on. And there's also a lot of commitment to this longstanding vision that you kind of shared earlier. And so I was, I was interested in kind of your, um, your education. You uh, double majored in religious studies and women's studies. Is that correct? Okay. My whole bio. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was I my I have a degree in religious studies as well, and people are always really kind of shocked about that. Yeah. And so I was I'm interested in how that like background education led you to like do what you're doing right now. I mean, this is mission work for me, right? So this is I mean, this is this work of leaving the world better than I found it has been something deeply ingrained in me. And I think is ultimately a spiritual path and not a, a, you know, professional path. Uh, I, you know, I think the understanding and believing in the believing in humanity and doing work that reflects that 
I think is also a key is a key part of that. And it's, you know, and again, it's, and doing, and, you know, being a, being a, a, a mom, an entrepreneur who's like out there trying to kind of make, you know, do the best that I can do leveraging my skills, experience and network around a particular mission is like, there's so much uncertainty in that. And it's, I think the only way that you can ground yourself is like the belief that the purpose is larger than just you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so all of those are religious concepts and, mm-hmm. you know, in, in various ways that have various kind of words associated with them, depending on what tradition you're looking at. I, re- I read somewhere that you, your background is in um, Hinduism, I believe. Yeah. How did, can you tell me more about that? I mean, my, so my parents were your kind of classic hippies in the, in the early 70s nice. and lived in a commune and met some guru who was visiting from India who kind of set up ashrams in the U.S. Wow. And so I grew up like chanting and meditating and doing yoga before it was cool and <laughs> before there were apps to assist really us it was really uncool actually <laughs> at, the, at the time um but i you know i think it's you know one of the sort of one of the principal tenets around hinduism is this idea that i mean essentially that god exists in every everyone and everything and so when you kind of when you're looking at at a a religious tradition that isn't monotheistic. It's kind of like that ability to really see, understand and live and, and experience God and everything. And also just the idea around Hinduism is that oftentimes good and evil exist in the same person, belief entity or system. And so I think it's like being able to understand and grapple with that idea is, is I kind of think also important. I mean, I also like, I, I'm currently like a little bit more into Jesus than I am into Hinduism. And so like that's new and kind of like seems interesting. Bit of a transition. Bit of a, bit of a transition. It's like, it's the one that's the part I, I, I like the, I like the idea. I really like kind of some of the more kind of modern Christianity and just the idea of or idea, some of the ideas around mission and purpose and kind of like walking your values in the world and really just like believing then grace showing up in your life in every moment. And particularly around that sort of in the, in the U S easier to find a, a kind of a church that recognizes the power of that personal relationship with something that is divine mm-hmm. than it is defined like a sort of Hindu temple for white people. Yeah. So <laughs> is, medi- is meditation or some kind of awareness practice still part of your life or really do meditation? There's wow. more stories behind that. <laughs> Maybe for so yeah, another, another time. Another time. <laughs> then you like wine, right? <laughs> uh, so, um, <clears throat> for myself who, you know, I'm interested in, uh, change the standard of care for chronic disease, make health another and wellness, the new, <laughs> the new norm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, And there are so many skills that are going to be necessary to acquire in that process. Um, And I know um, a lot of people listening to this are, you know, in med school and they, in order to really create substantial impact, they are going to need to cultivate skills. How did you approach this? Like, okay, I have this mission and there are these skills that I need to acquire along the way how did you know like where to look and and what how to build up your like reservoir i mean i i mean, think one is is that it it always looks like it makes sense in like a perfect narrative oh, if exactly. you, re- if you read it backwards <laughs> it does i'm like it's so beautiful how like right. all these events lined up and yes. like yes exactly so you're reading like the the sort of mid and again it's like the mid portion of this it's like yeah. 20 years into like into this journey i mean most of the steps are extremely uncertain and so you can only really learn one or two things at a time i, I mean i think for me it was it was the 
it was really just the, just the do the thing that you can do when you can do it. And so that, that started probably for me around just getting an MBA. Like I knew I was going to need an MBA in order to think about how to influence power and change in the world. And so I kind of saw an opportunity to get one, got one. Then, you know, I, and then I had, I started messing around a little bit more with like, I, you know, I wanted to do writing. So I was doing more public writing. So I started messing around on a blog. I kind of happened to then have some graphic go viral, which then gave me more. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. So you <laughs> casually published this graphic on Tumblr in what is this like 2013 or something? Yes. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden you realize that it's been shared, you know, like 12,000 times. Yes. It's now so, I think like 800,000 times. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And how, so, um, yeah. Can, can you just briefly tell that story? <laughs> well, it was the first time I, mean, I was trying, I was playing around in this idea of like how, cause I was talking, I was out there talking to men and I kept sort of coming at it with this idea that a lot of men were really fixated on this idea of false accusation of sexual assault. And and so in my mind, I was going to create a graphic that would like, let me start a conversation with you where it'd be like, Zach, I mean, like, look, your chances of raping somebody and getting away with it are like, you know, far better than like your chances of like getting falsely accused of a sexual assault that you didn't commit. Like, here's some of the sort of like basics of like data mm-hmm. around it. And, and then we would have a conversation about. And that's how it would go. Cause I would be super receptive to right, that. Exactly. Well, Cause we would be sitting down and you would see my face and like, you would know that like, you know, kind of like, Hey, like I'm just like here to chat about this. Right. And so like, I'm let's here to talk. accuse you of money pretty much. <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> so, no. Well, no, that I would say like, no, I'm not accusing you of rape. I'm just saying that it's like, you know, and again, like, and then I would say the thing about like, well, you know, it's like, and also like, if you're, you, you know, you can be afraid of it, but not, you know, that shouldn't stop you from supporting survivors or like caring about prevention, blah, blah, yeah. blah, right? So it's like, we should be more concerned about the people who are raping people and getting away with it. And also if you're falsely accused, it's part of the same system. So like, we should just fix the system. So anyway, I was like, I thought that's how it was going to go. Um, and it didn't go that way at all, because if you post something on the internet, turns out people just like whatever their feelings are about it is it gets you know represented and so i somehow managed to piss off like the sort of far left feminists and the far right men's rights activists at the same time with the same graphic (laughs) which impressive right i mean i remember when this graphic came out really yes oh i vividly remember and i remember at the time how did you feel about it oh i felt it was terrible. Did you feel offended? I did. I totally I was like, who's... <laughs> no, but... Um, and so that's why when I was reading it, uh, reading about this, I was just like, oh my gosh, like that was me. Like that was me saying like, who who does this person think they are to just like... They are to just put this thing out there. Right. These on... statistics and right. facts. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, it was also like it was a... It was an artistic approach to data, not like a, and this was, I think also just when like data science was kind of like starting to become popularized. And Uh so it was also like, I I wasn't trying to do it as a data scientist. I was trying to do it as a conversation starter. So like I learned that like, you know, I learned a lot of things through that. And a a lot of what I learned frames the way that I talk about this issue now, because that was, you know, what I learned is that's not a good and effective way to start a conversation about sexual violence. I wouldn't have learned it that wouldn't have learned that lesson if I hadn't done it. And so, I mean, that's also like what, you know, oftentimes what I'll say is like, look, like if I started that conversation and like lived to tell the story about it, it's like, you should, you know, like what's the worst thing that's yeah, going to happen you, to you? That's such a good point. Like you've talked the talk, you've walked the walk on. Yeah, I've messed this uh, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good point. <laughs> it's like people, oh, I still get, I still get 
comments and emails of like, when are you going to change that graphic? I'm like, I'm not. Like, read my book. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's a good plug, right? (laughs) Yeah, this is a book that I look forward to. um, I mean, even I I would just I would love to find a way to work this into what we're doing because I just think it's so important for medical students to start their career knowing this and i liked how it's like yeah buy one copy for yourself and the creepy boss that you have like <laughs> you need to uh have this book before. and even just family members who are the ones who always make that kind of like weird comment at thanksgiving and yeah. you know right um so get it for everyone else like i would say yeah. get it sort of for, get it for the people who don't say anything but you think probably would yeah yeah hmm. I, I wanted to ask, so I'm really interested in organizational behavior. Uh, that's kind of why I came here to get my MPH, um, because I want to build a healthcare organization that really is built from the ground up with a culture that is not only the best for the patients we serve, but like the employees. Um, and so I'm curious, what are the, I mean, you've consulted for so many organizations. What are some of the huge kind of red flags that's like, oh shit, this is going to be a really tough organization to work with? Or the ones where you're like, okay, there's a lot to work with here. Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think from on this topic, most of the organizations that I'm working with are like new to it in some way. And so I would say it's less of a, you know, less of a range. I think it's the, you know, the ones where if, I mean, the ones who wait until there's like some public news story or major incident and, like, and then it. <laughs> well and then you're doing the training but you don't want to talk about like that's actually like that's kind of hard um you know there's others who have a you know sort of have a desire to do things but like haven't quite gotten their compliance act together so they actually do need to just do the compliance part first so sometimes they'll reach out but like what i do it's more than it's more than compliance and they are just looking to check the box. And so great, like then do that first and come back when you realize it doesn't work. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so, I mean, I would say it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's generally there. I mean, I think there's, there's a range and most, most organizations that are, are that I'm working with are ones that want to do this from a skills-based perspective. And so it's less about kind of there being problems and it's more about like kind of figuring out what particularly is at play in, in the organization. And so, um, so, you know, so a lot of times it involves demystifying human resource. Like, so I think there's oftentimes there's like a like black box around human resources and in some institutions, go talk to HR, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. like go talk to HR and then, you know, and if you're a startup organization, you're actually just in the process of like putting formality around human resources in place, which is like a different set of conversations. Whereas if you've got a historic at an arm's length, like we don't know those people, human resources department at a bigger institution, then the conversations are different. So it's really about kind of bringing those people into the room and explaining what happens when a report actually is filed. And, you know, and if there's a history of, you know, I think it's, you know, if there's a history of, gosh, well, there was this person and like all these people reported them and then nothing happened. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's like nothing happened that we saw. Um, sometimes as that person was put on a warning and if there was ever another report filed, they would be fired. But then since there's no trust with human resources or like nothing happened, so then a bunch of more things happened and nobody reported it. And so, um, so I think it's kind of sorting some of those things out tend to kind of be it. And then I think it's also just the reliance on like, I'll go in and do a training, but if, if managers still then don't feel like they can carry these conversations forward. So that's actually something I've been troubleshooting a lot. And hopefully, and again, one of the big reasons that I'm excited to have the book, because I think it does make it a lot more tangible to be like, no, you have like, 
you, you can't just talk about this when an expert's in the room or for like one hour a year. It's not going to work. It's not going to work that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's a, per, it's a perfect guidebook. I mean, you're, you're like the course that you provide. It's, you know, re, just reading a couple of chapters, having a session around it, having a dialogue. Yeah. yeah. And, and we found with cope that that kind of thing is super powerful. Like literally just come prepared. We'll discuss this topic for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and then we'll be in discussions. We'll be doing, we'll be practicing this and integrating it um, instead of just like hypothesizing about what this looks like. Yeah. Okay. So a few rapid fire questions. Are you familiar with the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule? Principle? So uh, it's the idea that um, 80% of the results come from 20% of oh, the yeah. effort. Um, and so my question for you is, uh, in general, when it when it comes to health, this doesn't necessarily just have to be about um, the work that you do. What do you consider to be the twenty percent for health, optimal health? I would say sleep, exercise, and social connection. Ooh, yeah, and I was, it's hard to it's hard to not include sleep in there. You seem like someone who is a lifelong learner, and so what are you learning more about right now? This can be related to the work you do or something else that just contributes to your mission. Uh, I'm learning more about anxiety. Okay. And how does that tie into all the work that you're doing? I mean, I think I'm learning more about anxiety so that I can be a better mom. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Fair. Um, seems like being a mother could be somewhat anxiety. Well, and also my, my son has anxiety. And so I'm trying to, and but his anxiety is different than mine. So I have tools that I've developed to manage anxiety, but I'm trying to figure out how he understands, like how to help him develop his own set of tools. We kind of talked about this earlier, but what is one class or course that you wish would be taught in medical school? Oh, that's a good one. That trauma-informed care. Okay. Yeah. I had a feeling you'd say that, but (laughs) um, what is something that you used to be super confident about that you have since completely changed your mind about? I mean, I've been thinking. A, I, I've been thinking a lot about just the about balance and ambition, and that ambition doesn't always mean working harder. Sometimes it just means working differently. And it's like, and I've been thinking a lot about kind of accepting the distance between the world that you, the world that you want, or the work that you want to do, and where you are in the present moment, and that. And that what ambition means is that it means that there's always going to be a distance or a gap. And so I think mm-hmm. before I thought that it was like your job was was to run faster, work harder to close the gap. And that now I think it's just accepting, accepting the gap. And that like, like there's not a finish line kind of thing? Yeah, there's no finish line. Yeah. Okay. Like and, if you take on a big mission, that's like you're not, like it's not, right. you're not crossing the finish line. Like you're just like, so you have to just, and that whenever you get close, it's like, how do you keep moving and motivate yourself to keep moving? Because it's like, it's not about getting there. That reminds me of, um, are you familiar with James Clear? Mm -hmm. He's a, um, a habit author. Okay. Uh, and he points something out that I didn't realize until recently. And that's when you, when you are craving a piece of cake or whatever it may be, the dopamine spike is higher and more significant prior to consuming the thing because that's what motivates you to take the action. And that consuming the actual reward 
after the first time is actually not a super dopaminergic process. And the reason I brought that up is because it, if, if we can kind of know that the pleasure and satisfaction comes from the anticipation of kind of like the carrot in front of us and knowing that that gap's always going to be there and also being at peace with it and not like resentful of it. I think there's something about that that's like the key to like a fulfilling life. Yeah. Because I think that there's this, we, we, our, our own brains are, I think, evolutionarily wired to make, to create the illusion that I feel this way and therefore like when I get to this accomplishment I will be I will right. I will reach enlightenment or fulfillment right. or whatever it is but it, no it's it's literally that it seems like that trajectory and that momentum that is like what is so fulfilling right well I mean we were talking before about about Karen <laughs> about Karen no. Karen, Karen! <laughs> but it's it's like you know to, like if, if what you're thinking about is I'm going to do 150 wall balls or like I have to do this really long thing, it's just impossible to mentally manage yourself through that. And so like le- like learning how to manage yourself during, you know, a, either a slog or like an endurance workout or in, and how you break it. You know, so I was like, I did five and then I dropped the ball and I did five and I got to cross off two fives yeah. <laughs> and I just kept doing it and like enjoying my reward, my little tiny reward every time I, you know, sort of like every time I did the next thing. And then the next thing you know, you've done 150 well balls and yeah. you're done. <laughs> and you're done. And your quads are seizing and you're in lactic acidosis. Right. It's great. <laughs> um, okay. Well, this was such a good conversation. I learned a lot about how to both kind of respond to respond to people in the wake of sexual violence and not just sit there staring blankly saying this is so hard and uncomfortable and actually like knowing how to be present with someone, I think, and also feeling a little bit more equipped to go into an organization and create some real change. So thank you so much for all the work you're doing in this space. I think it's impacting substantial kind of domino effect on all the people that are going to read this book and the impact that they're going to make. Well, thank you. And I look forward to hearing about all your uncomfortable conversations (laughs) and how they go. I'll share them all with you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and doesn't constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the material of this podcast is at the user's own risk. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any treatment of conditions.